Man, I'm grateful. Is it, who, who else has a container, something, metal, ceramic, plastic? Let's go for it. Now's the time. Mm. Oh, that quenched my thirst. Several months back, I uh, ended up preaching, I think probably a week, maybe a week and a half after I had got out of the hospi hospital, I uh, have a degenerated disc with a nice little pretty tear in it, and so that, that put me down for a couple days in the hospital, and then I think within a week or two, I preached, and I, I didn't realize until after the service that it was the medication that I was on that made me so absolutely thirsty. For those of you who had to watch me, I mean, I was like shaking, oh, could barely get it down, I was sweating profusely, and later on I realized, hey, the medication, I was so absolutely thirsty. Um, so praise God for water. Uh, today we're going to be speaking about water, but a different kind of water than what I have in this bottle. Um, today we're going to see that only Jesus Christ can quench our soul's thirst. Did you know that your soul thirsts? And only Jesus Christ can quench it with living water. Um, before we get to today's text, last week, if you remember, we discussed that during the season of Lent, remember Lent is a 40-day period, uh, starts on Ash Wednesday, ends that Saturday of Easter weekend. It's 40 days. You don't count the Sunday. Sunday is always a day of celebration. So 46 goes down to 40. It's very symbolic of Christ. Remember Christ went to the wilderness. He fasted. He this is how he began his ministry was going into the, withdrawing into the wilderness for 40 days. He, fast, he, he fasted, he prayed, and he sought the Lord. He also uh, defeated the enemy's uh, uh, attempts to tempt him. And so uh, during the season of Lent, we take an inventory of our spiritual lives. We take, take stock. You know, who am I uh, in light of Christ? Uh, um, uh, what is going on in my soul? What is going on with me in light of Christ? And so as we take this inventory and we anticip anticipate Easter, when we celebrate the death, burial, and resurrection of Christ, we typically give up things so that we can replace those with time in prayer. So fasting uh, is a big part of Lent. Uh, a lot of people fast meat. Uh, I think on Fridays they don't eat meat, they eat fish. Some people, uh, Protestants if you will, they're, they're all about fasting Facebook or television or chocolate or uh, sweets or whatever have you. But the idea is that you would give up something and replace that with Christ, time with Christ, draw close to him as Christ did in the wilderness. And so while those things are good, while they help us loose our grip on worldly things and, and cause us to focus towards Christ, we've decided that through the series, uh, the Lent series, uh, it's actually six Sundays, but we're going to throw Easter Sunday in there, that we would focus on giving up things that have eternal significance. So we're going to be working through the Gospel of John, and as you see today here, we're going to be discussing giving up thirst, uh, and we're going to see that Christ, uh, it's only Jesus Christ that can quench our soul's thirst uh, through living water. And so if you remember last week, we talked about the Gospel of John. There's four Gospels, Matthew, Mark, Luke. Those are called the synoptics because they're very similar. John is very unique. I likened all the Gospels to a uh, three-hour movie, if you will. John goes to that last hour, and then he sort of blows that up into a three-hour movie of his own. He focuses specifically on the ministry of Christ. Uh, John is uh, a very unique book. Of course, we know that uh, Apostle John was one of the 12 disciples, brother with James, son of Zebedee, and they were also, uh, both James and John were Jesus' cousins, so that's pretty cool. Uh, there are some things in John and the Gospel of John that aren't in the other Gospels, the Synoptic Gospels. 
Uh, and certainly what we see in the Gospel of John is that Jesus uh, decisively and explicitly identifies himself as God. Uh, and so uh, we're excited to be in the Gospel of John. Today we're going to find ourselves in the fourth chapter. You can go ahead and turn there. I mean, you've probably already beat me to it. It's on the screen behind me. Chapter 4, verses 1 through 15. If you remember last week, we were in chapter 3. Uh, again, these two stories, last week, chapter 3, Jesus has a conversation with a man named Nicodemus. This week, he's going to have a conversation with a woman, a Samaritan woman. Both of these accounts are unique to John's gospel. Okay, last week, we discovered that this religious elite, this Pharisee, this member of the Sanhedrin, which would have been like a Jewish Supreme Court, um, came to Jesus by night under the cover of darkness. He didn't want his Sanhedrin, Pharisee, Sadducee buddies to know that he was going to Jesus. says, hey, we know that you're from God because look at what you're doing. But uh, essentially what he was saying was, so what's the deal? Who are you? Are you the Messiah? And then Jesus unpacks this metaphor. He says, you've got to be born again to enter the kingdom of God. This really takes Nicodemus back. What are you talking about, born again? I'm an old dude. I'm supposed, to, I'm supposed to be born again. How can this happen? I'm supposed to go back up in my mother. He can't get it. Uh, and so uh, today we're going to see that Christ used another metaphor when he's talking with the Samaritan woman. And so um, before we uh, dive in chapter 4, let's commit this text and our time to the Lord. Would you bow with me, please? Gracious Heavenly Father, we most certainly thank you for what you've given us in Jesus Christ. We thank you that you've uh, revealed yourself in Christ, and you've also revealed yourself in your word. We thank you that the that your word is living and active, Scripture says. It's sharper than a double-edged sword. And so, Lord, we ask through the power of your Holy Spirit that you would be at work in us today. Lord, for those who are in need of encouragement, as I'm sure that we all are, that through the power of your Holy Spirit you would encourage us. Lord, those of us who are in need of correction, that as a loving Father that you would correct us, that you would put us back on path, Lord, that you would discipline us. We thank you for your Holy Spirit. We ask that your Holy Spirit would, um, Lord, soften our hearts, loosen our necks as we are transformed by your word this morning. We offer this text to you, this time to you, and Lord, I ask that you use me. We thank you for these things and ask that your will would be done in Christ's most precious and holy name. Amen. Some more water. I, I love that we could just, I went over to the gas station, I'm not lying to you. I remember when I was a kid, you had like five, four, five choices. They certainly didn't have water. You remember, who's old enough to remember selling water? Can you remember that when they first started doing that? You thought, no way. Now it's huge. It's huge, right? Coca-Cola has Dasani. I love it. I'm grateful for it. My wife knows that when we stop at the gas station to fuel up the car, that it's going to be, it's going to be a process. It, it, for me, it's like going to Walt Disney World. Um, I'm just taken back by all the colors, and in my mind, I hear slot machines going off, and I'm just looking, do I get an Arizona iced tea? If I do, which one do I get? There's 20 to choose from. And water, who would think water would be difficult? But I know, I know already I'm a water connoisseur. I don't like the Sani, but what's the one in the square bottle? Fiji, Fuji? Well, I love that one, but it's really come on, it's expensive, right? When you see it on sale, sometimes you go for it. Who thought they'd put water on sale? Anyway. Um, before we dig into uh, the text, this well, let's go ahead and read it. Uh, chapter 4, chapter 4, let's find it. Okay. Read with me, please. Now, keep in mind, 
the, the, the story here of Jesus and the Samaritan woman, it's about 45 verses. That's a lot, and there are at least three or four sermons here. So we're only going to go to verse 15. We'll stop there, but we'll also grab a couple verses. We'll kind of look ahead and see how the story pans out. So for right now, let's read 1 through 15. Now, when Jesus learned that the Pharisees had heard that Jesus was making and baptizing more disciples than John, although Jesus himself did not baptize, but only his disciples, he left Judea and departed again for Galilee. And he had to pass through Samaria. So he came to a town of Samaria called Sychar, near the field that Jacob had given to his son Joseph. Jacob's well was there. So Jesus, wearied as he was from his journey, was sitting beside the well. It was about the sixth hour. A woman from Samaria came to draw water. Jesus said to her, give me a drink. For his disciples had gone away into the city to buy, water, rather to buy food. The Samaritan woman said to him, how is it that you, a Jew, ask for a drink from me, a Samaritan woman? For Jews have no dealings with Samaritans. Jesus answered her, If you knew the gift of God and who it is that is saying to you, Give me a drink, you would have asked him, and he would have given you living water. The woman said to him, Sir, you have nothing to draw water with, and the well is deep. Where do you get that living water? Are you greater than our father Jacob? He gave us the well and drank from it himself as did his sons and his livestock. Jesus said to her, Everyone who drinks of this well will be thirsty again, but whoever drinks of the water that I will give him will never be thirsty again. The water that I will give him will become in him a spring of water welling up to eternal life. The woman said to him, Sir, Give me this water so that, I don't, so that I will not be thirsty or have to come here to draw water. Now, in order for us to really understand what's going on here, we need to have uh, a little bit of perspective. And so here's what we need to know, that uh, the region of Judea would have been south, so right here. Just above it would have been the region of Samaria. And then north of that was the region of Galilee. Okay? So from top down, Galilee, Samaria, Judea. And so um, it, it was not typical that, that Jews who wanted to go north walked directly through Samaria. And the reason for that was purposeful. The Jews despised the Samaritans. They, in fact, hated the Samaritans. They were disgusted by them. And I'll tell you why. At one point, the kingdom of Israel was divided into two kingdoms. There was a northern kingdom uh, known as the kingdom of Israel, and there was a southern kingdom known as the kingdom of Judea. Well, the northern kingdom was defeated by the Assyrians in about 722, give or take. Okay, They defeated the Assyrians. Now, what, is, what's, what was common practice, and it still happens in some places of the world today, is... Um, the Assyrians went in, and when they conquered the Israelites, they took the majority of the Israelites out of the, of, of the Samaria area. They brought them into ex- exile. They only left a small number of Samaritans there, and then they bust in, if you will. They moved in other people groups, other ethnic groups, with other religions, and the idea here was that they would weaken the Jews They would weaken their ethnicity, they would weaken them racially, and they would weaken them religiously, that there would be a blending of the Jews with these other people groups. That's exactly what happened. 
And so the best way to think of the Samaritans was they were half-breeds. To a Jew, they were ceremonial, ceremonially unclean. They were as unclean as Gentiles. In fact, religiously speaking, what they had done, the Samaritans, was only keep the first five books of the Bible. They got rid of the Psalms, the Prophets, and the wisdom literature. They sort of blended uh, the Jewish religion with religions uh, that had come in with those people groups. They, they were known to be worshiping false gods. And so you have a people group who's completely despised here, okay? Uh, this is important that we understand this. Um, and then um, this is how despised they were. At, a few hundred years later, they, they weren't even welcome in Jerusalem to worship at the temple. So they said, hey, we'll, we will. Uh, basically what happened was a Jewish guy who got sort of ticked off said, I'm out of here, and he went up to Samaria, and he, he married a woman up there. And so to tick off the Jews, he said, let's build our own temple. They did that, and they began worshiping there on top of Mount Gerizim. And then about 120 years before Christ's coming, uh, the, the Jews said, man, we're not going to have this anymore. They marched up there and destroyed the temple on top of Mount Gerizim where fa- false worship was taking place, worship of, of other gods and so on. And so um, here we are. We have a people who's, who has intermarried uh, with the Israelites' enemies. Uh, they are, uh, there is a serious racial, cultural uh, ethnic, religious tensions that are taking place, and we see Jesus, a Jew, conversing with a Samaritan woman at the well. Let's pick up our story, and we'll look at verses 1 through 3. Now, when Jesus learned that the Pharisees had heard that Jesus was making and baptizing more disciples than John, although Jesus himself did not baptize, but only his disciples, he left Judea and departed for Galilee. The first thing we need to, that's important for you to know is that Jesus was not running from the Pharisees. He was not sort of uh, tucking his tail and running out of Judea. Uh, what we have to understand is, why would the Pharisees be upset that he was making and baptizing more, uh, more Jews than John? Well, if you remember John the Baptist, he was the guy out in the wilderness saying, repent and be baptized. Prepare a way, make a way for the Lord. The kingdom of God is at hand. And the very people that John the Baptist told, hey, you need to repent and be baptized, was the Pharisees. So you remember the, the, the Pharisees, they were law keepers. They, they considered themselves perfect law keepers, and they were most certainly clean. And so John was telling them, you need to repent and be baptized. They hated John. And now Jesus and his disciples... While Jesus wasn't doing the baptizing, Jesus and his disciples were both making disciples and then baptizing them. They're not fond of this. But we know in John chapter 3, verse 35, it tells us that all things had been given into Christ's hands. So Jesus was not controlled by circumstances, but instead he was in charge of all circumstances. So he wasn't running from Judea to go up to Galilee because of the Pharisees. Let's take a quick look at verse 4, very short verse. And he had to pass through Samaria. Okay, I'm going to make the case that he didn't have to geographically. There, there, there wasn't construction uh, on the Edens. Um, you see, t- typically, and what would happen is that all good Jews or strict Jews would not travel due north. They wouldn't go from Judea straight through Samaria up into Galilee. They would cross east, crossing over the Jordan River, and then they would navigate along the east side of the Jordan River 
And then take a left, get off on the exit up in Galilee, and go west. The two-day to three-day trip would double. It would be doubled. It would turn into six days. You get this. They despise the Samaritans so much that they cross over the Jordan River going east through rough terrain and go north to circumnavigate, circumnavigate it, to go all the way around it. This is what good or strict Jews would do, is they would travel around, not go directly through Samaria. And so Jesus, the text says, had to pass through Samaria. In the account of Jesus raising Lazarus from the dead in John chapter 10 and 11, Jesus is near the Jordan River when I believe it's Martha comes to him and says, hey, my brother Lazarus is very ill. He's dying. Now, they lived in Bethany is where Lazarus was. And the text tells us, this is John 10 and John 11, that after Jesus hearing that his friend was dying, he stayed for another two days where he was at. They just, just chilled out for two more days. And this really... this can easily make us think, wow, what, what was he doing? What, was he, he just didn't care? That sounds really sort of jerky. But when we read the text, it tells us that uh, the fact that Lazarus got sick and died was God's will so that God would be glorified. So by the time Jesus showed up in Bethany, Lazarus was well dead. The text tells us four days. And so there was no questioning when Jesus said, come out of there, and the dead man came out, no one could have thought this dude was just napping. And it says that all that was done to bring God glory. The reason I bring up this exchange with Jesus raising Lazarus from the dead and him deciding to go to Bethany two days later is because I believe, and what we see elsewhere in Scripture in the Gospels, is that everything Jesus did was purposeful. It was purposeful. So I don't believe he had to go to Samaria because uh, the long route was blocked or the disciples talked him into, let's just take the short route and go straight up through uh, Samaria where these despised people are. I believe the reason that Jesus had to go to Samaria was because he had a divine appointment with a Samaritan woman at a well referred to as Jacob's well. This is why Jesus had to go to Samaria, because he had a divine appointment. Let's look at verses 5 and 6. So he came to a town of Samaria called Sychar near the field that Jacob had given to his son Joseph. Jacob's well was there. So Jesus, wearied as he was from his journey, was sitting beside the well. It was about the sixth hour. Now this well, Jacob's well, it was in a field that Jacob had bought and gave to Joseph. The well was about a mile from the city Sychar. A mile doesn't sound too far until you realize that Later on, we'll see this woman was walking in the middle of the day, the hottest part of the day, to go get water. I'm thinking by the time I'm going to get water, I'm thirsty already. I ran over to the gas station at five minutes before the service started just to get water, thinking, man, what if I got hit by a car? You know, Sam would have to preach or Jim or somebody. But I, I was thirsty by the time I went to get this water. So it wasn't an easy task to go get water is what I'm getting at, a mile outside of town. And so what the text tells us at the end of verse 6 is that it was about the sixth hour. This is noon. This is 12 o'clock. And so from, from Judea, it would have been about a six-hour journey for Jesus and his disciples. Okay? It, it, it's pretty warm. It's pretty warm at this time. They're wore out. And it's amazing to me. And let's just pick up at verse 7. A woman from Samaria came to draw water. Jesus said to her, give me a drink. 
Okay, so he's weary and he's thirsty. The Son of God is weary and thirsty. This is amazing. You see, this to me reminds me of what what is known as the hypostatic union, and that is that Christ uh, has two natures, but he's one person. He's 100% God, and he's 100% man. And here we we see the man, the Son of God, thirsty and weary. That's amazing. That's amazing because it took... He took a perfect spotless lamb that was both man and was both God to die on the cross for us as a sacrifice. And so here we see that Jesus is tired and weary and he asks for a drink. Let's pick it back up in seven. A woman from Samaria came to draw water. Jesus said to her, give me a drink. Now this is really like a request. Here it reads in English that it almost seems like he's being rude, but he's asking her. And then verse 8 tells us, for the disciples had gone away into the city to buy food. So apparently it takes all 12 of them to go into the city to buy food. Um, Makes me think of, you know, the kids always saying, me too, me too, I want to go, I want to go. And so everybody goes, and now here Jesus is by himself at the well. I I think it was actually, um, it was part of, uh, of Christ's providential work, that he wanted to be alone to meet this woman at the well. So it was him and it was her. So here he is alone at the well. Um, Here's what we need to know. Um, uh, Verse 6 had told us it was about the sixth hour, so it's noon time. And here's the woman coming to get water. Women did not typically go to the well alone. Just didn't do it. You went in groups for safety, to keep each other company, because when you're caring... You don't just go and fill up a 16-ounce container. You're filling up something big if you're going to hike a mile out and then a mile back. So they went in groups. And then the other thing that's important to know is that you didn't go get water at noon. It was the hottest part of the day. This reminds me of when I was in the military in Saudi Arabia. Uh, We used to get up and do our PT, our physical fitness. We'd go running. Uh, We were on an Air Force base. Uh, all the Air Force guys would be sleeping and we'd be up running at 5 a.m., 6 a.m. Because we were trying to beat the heat. At, at 5 or 6 a.m., it was already 85, 90 degrees. And so um, while they were sleeping, we were running. Uh, and, and by 10 a.m., easily, it was 100, over 100 degrees. Uh, by noon, it would have been pushing 120. And where I was at, it was dry heat. Very, very dry. I've never experienced anything like it. Even in my time passing through Arizona, you wouldn't see yourself sweat. No, no evidence of sweating. If you didn't have a bottle of water in your hand at all times and you were drinking that, you'd fall flat on your face with dehydration. You could easily die. It was so hot in the Middle East where I was at that we, worked fi- our, we were ordered to work 15 minutes and rest 45. It was that hot. I remember being in a building looking out at some guy maybe 100 yards out, 200 yards out. And it looked like a mirage, you know, Looked like everything was floating. You know, anybody ever drive west on uh, uh, 80, Interstate 80, going to like Iowa, Nebraska? There's like nothing going on out there, right? I played a two-hour game of Uno with my daughter driving through there once. And um, you, you sort of see something. I see this guy. It looks like he's like walking in slow motion, working on equipment. He's moving with the utmost strength. But you're so tired and wore out from the heat, it just exhausts you. So all this to say, you didn't go to the well at noon. 
And so here's what we learn from this, the fact that she's alone and it's noon. She's not going when it's 30 degrees cooler in the morning or evening. She was despised by her own people. Her own people didn't want anything to do with her. So as an outcast, she went to the well in the hottest part of the day. Probably nobody there. I won't get messed with. And here she is encountering the living God, encountering Jesus. We know here in verse 7 that Jesus says, give me a drink. I I want you to understand how significant this was for Jesus to talk to this half-breed. Okay, picture a white man, 1955, Montgomery, Alabama, going up to the drinking fountain in a Woolworths shopping center and saying to a black woman at the colored fountain, hey, can I get a drink? And would you fill up your cup and I'm going to drink out of your cup? It wouldn't happen. It wouldn't happen. Completely, totally, socially unacceptable. This is what that's like. You didn't do this. She was unclean just by the mere fact that she was a Samaritan. Okay? Ethnically, racially, religiously unclean. And so here he is asking her for water. What's interesting is, do you remember last week Nicodemus approaches this religious man approaches Jesus by night under the cover of darkness as so not to be seen. There's an amazing contrast that should be hitting us upside the head right now. Here Jesus is in the middle of the day. Anyone can see him talking to this despised person that he wasn't supposed to be talking to. Jesus didn't care about his reputation. And that's amazing. Jesus did not care about his reputation but saw this woman as valuable, had a divine appointment, and begins this conversation with her. Let's let's read how she responded again. Verse 9, the Samaritan woman said to him, How is it that you, a Jew, ask for a drink from me, a woman of Samaria? For Jews have no dealings with Samaria. End of verse 9. It's very easy to think that just because this woman is a Samaritan woman, she's dragging her her bucket, her, her... clay container out to a well at noon. Maybe she's not too bright. But I like to make the, ca- the case that I think she's really bright. She's bright enough to know I'm not supposed to be talking to you. And you're not supposed to be talking to me. This, is, this isn't supposed to be happening right now. I think she's very bright. And so the Samaritan woman knows exactly what is going on. Now let's listen closely. Let's see how Christ responds. We're going to read verses 10 through 14 again. And we'll uh, take a pause halfway through there and talk about it. Verse 10, Jesus answered her, If you knew the gift of God and who it is that is saying to you, Give me a drink, you would have asked him, and he would have given you living water. Now here's how she responds. The woman said to him, Sir, you have nothing to draw water with, and the well is deep. Now this well was probably at least 100 feet deep, maybe 200 and she's saying, you don't, even, you don't even have a container. You don't. Now, no one traveled without a container. In all cultures, a container is essential because you never know when you're going to... Now, obviously not right now. I can walk to the gas station. There's a thousand choices. But in most primitive cultures and in times before today, even, even some hundred years ago, when people navigated and moved through terrain, they never knew where the next water spot was going to be. And so you had to have a container to carry something. And she says, you don't even have a container. 
Now, they were, the, the 12 dudes were probably so excited to go into town, uh, they brought it with them. They must have. But nonetheless, she says, you don't have one. And then she says, are you greater than our father Jacob? He gave us the well and drank from it, as did the sons, as did his sons and his livestock. And here's how Jesus responded. Listen carefully. Everyone who drinks of this well will, or rather, everyone who drinks of this water from Jacob's well, he's referring, will be thirsty again. But whoever drinks of the water that I will give him will never be thirsty again. Will never be thirsty again. Will never be thirsty again. The water that I will give him, that I will give him, will become in him a spring of water welling up to eternal life. There's, there, what we need to understand is that living water is salvation. It's life with God. It's a cleansing. It's a satisfying. It's, it's a sense of completion. It's strength. It's healing. It's energy. It's a refreshing of the soul. It's a quenching of the soul's thirst. This is what living water is. And the text tells us six things about it. Okay, let's make sure that we pick up these six things. The first thing that we heard in verse 10 is it's a gift from God. If you knew the gift of God, living water, what quenches our soul's thirst is a gift from God. The second thing that Jesus makes clear is that it's given by Him. It's given by Jesus in verse 10. The latter part of it says, it says, and who it is that is saying to you, give me a drink, if you knew, you would have asked Him and he would have given you living water. Jesus is referring to himself. And then verse 14 we hear twice, but whoever drinks of the water that I will give him will never be thirsty again. The water that I give him, it will become something. So this living water, it's a gift, and it's given to us by Jesus Christ. And the third thing is, let's understand, it's not just water. It's living water. There's something living about it. And he's not talking about H2O. It's living water, verse 10. And verse 4, um, rather, number 4, the fourth thing we need to know, found in verse 14, is that if you drink the living water, you'll never thirst again. It will always satisfy your soul's longing and deep thirst. Living water means that if you have it, you'll never thirst again. And then number five, living water becomes a spring of water in you. It becomes something. It becomes a spring of water in you. It wells up into something is what the text tells us. And so the reason you'll never be thirsty is because one true drink will produce an eternity of soul-quenching water. Your soul, your souls will your soul's thirst, rather, will be satisfied. Your soul's thirst will be satisfied. You will never have to go anywhere else again. You will never go down empty wells again. There is only death down the well of idols, drunkenness, sex. There is only death down those wells. Letting a man use you or a man using a woman, or your good works apart from Christ, or hate, or anger, or vengeance, or greed, or lust. 
the quenching of your thirst will never be met by these things. Never. And how many of you know that? How many of you have tried to quench your soul's thirst at one point in your life prior to God calling you to Himself with these things? And your soul still thirsts. It still thirsts. You will never quench it with these things. But living water will become in you a spring of water welling up to what? The sixth thing we need to know. Welling up to eternal life. Living water gives eternal life. So what we see here is that only Jesus can quench your soul's thirst by giving you living water. Only Jesus. It's a gift. Jesus gives it. It's living. You'll never thirst again. It becomes a spring in you. You see God's Spirit in you after you're saved. It's a continual spring, a continual living water. It's not like the well, of Jacob's well. You have to wonder, is the water bad down there? You have to wonder, is it going to run out? The living water is a spring in you. It wells up as God's Spirit lives in you. It continues to refresh your soul. There is no well you have to keep going back to. You don't have to go back to adultery. You don't have to go back to pornography. You don't have to go back to fornicating. It satisfies your soul. If anybody is awake here today, let them hear that Jesus is the only one who can quench your thirst by living water. How does the Samaritan woman respond? Again, we're not going to unpack all 45 verses um, we could. We could go three hours, but we're, we're not going to. Let's hear how she responds in verse 15. The woman said to him, Sir, give me this water so that I will not be thirsty or have to come here to draw water. She didn't quite get it. Like Nicodemus, his, the dialogue with Jesus in chapter 3 ends at verse 9 because Nicodemus, he doesn't get it. And Jesus goes on and we have from a dialogue to monologue. That's not what happens here. In fact, when we read further, she starts getting it. She starts understanding what's going on here. But I have to tell you, I, I might react the same way as she did. Man, just give me some of this so I don't have to come here every day. Okay? I don't have to drag this bucket here a mile out. It's heavy, empty. And then i got to fill it and walk back. It's probably a gallon, two gallons. Who knows? It's heavy. You either carry it with two hands or it's on your head or you got some sort of, some sort of pole or stick to carry it. It's heavy. Give it to me so I don't have to come back here. Have, you, have you, any of you ever been at a point in your life where you just thought you're so thirsty you're going to die? Absolutely thirsty. I remember, again, going back to the military when I finished my boot camp and I went into what they call AIT, Advanced Individual Training. I went from South Carolina. It, I was there in November, December, January. It rained all the time. It, it was nasty. Elevation, I don't know what it was. It was low. Next thing you know, I'm down south in El Paso, Texas in high desert. Um, different climate, different elevation. It just totally wrecked me. Uh, when we first got there, you have to do an inventory of your duffel bag. So I got a drill sergeant, drill sergeant Steele, that was his name, Steele. Little man, Napoleon Syndrome, uh, wanted to prove to the world just because he was three foot two that he could still be a tough drill sergeant. And so he was just mean as all get out. And we'd have to, he'd tell everyone, take out your two black dress socks and hold them up. You're holding them up. And then he'd say, take out your, your belt, hold it up. Take out your canteen, hold it up. And you're holding it up while the guy down there is not, you're waiting on him. And I'm thinking, get it together, dude. You're shaking, you're shaking, holding something that weighs, you know, a few ounces, shaking as you're doing your inventory. The next day, here I am running. I hadn't adjusted to the climate, climate. I hadn't adjusted to the elevation. I'm young, I'm still learning my body. It's being put under a lot of pressure. 
And now in North Carolina, I must have been doing really good uh, because my, my times and running meant that when I got to El Paso, they put me in like the A group. There were A, B, C, group, different running groups based on how fast you were. Now, A group was those guys who were seven foot tall and had six foot tall legs. You know what I'm saying? Or those really short guys that like wind up toys. They just go, they just go, energizer bunnies. And so I'm tracking, I'm going with, I'm running. It wasn't too long before I realized there's a problem going on. And next thing I know, I got this guy screaming in my ear, are you quitting on me? Are you quitting on me? And then he's got two guys holding me up, and they're holding me as I'm running. I don't remember what happened. I just know that later they told me I blacked out. Boom, just completely blacked out. Spent the rest of the day uh, in the hospital getting pumped with fluids. When I came back, he was so mad at me. He made me get my canteen, uh, fill it up from the spout, turn my back to him because he didn't want to see my face because I disgusted him, and he made me drink canteen after canteen after canteen, which is high, very, very dangerous to actually drink a lot of water, but to the point of almost throwing up. But I remember that point. I remember thinking, I'm going to die. I'm thirsty. And I almost did. And I'm sure if someone hadn't taken me to the hospital, I probably could have died from dehydration. And so she's, I, can't, I don't blame her. <laughs> Give me some of this so I don't have to come back here. But Jesus isn't talking about H2O. He's talking about living water, okay? Now, as I said, we're not going to pack all these verses. So let's go ahead, though, and see how this progresses. Let's turn to uh, verses 25 and 26. Let's do that. 25 and 26. The woman said to him, I know that Messiah is coming, he who is called Christ. When he comes, he will tell us all things. Jesus said to her, I who speak to you am he. He reveals himself. I'm the Messiah. I'm the one who can give you living water. Now, what's unclear, what's unclear is whether or not this woman truly believed, whether she was converted. Uh, there are differing opinions on that. At the end of this, by verse 45, it says that she, she went into town, she told everybody, they came back, and it says because of her testimony, then they heard Christ. They asked Christ to stay for two more days. The Pharisees in Judea didn't want anything to do with them. But here, the half-breed said, stay, stay. And he stayed two more days, and it says that many believed. But we're not quite sure if she believed. Now, I think she did. Let's read verse 28. You see in like uh, 27, the, the disciples come back and they're, whoa, they're taken back. He's alone talking to a Samaritan woman. But they don't dare say anything. I'm sure they sense that something divine was happening. Uh, the living God was, was quenching this woman's, uh, this, her soul's thirst. And let's see verse 28. So the woman left her water jar and went away into town and said to the people, Come see a man who told me all that I ever did. Can this be the Christ? Now you see, after where we stopped in 15, Jesus says to her, hey, go get your husband. And she says, I don't have a husband. He says, you're right, you don't. You've had five, and you're living with a dude right now. He's not your husband. In fact, he's the guy using you, and you're getting water to go back and hook him up. And she, so she partially reveals her sin. We do the same thing. We only kind of sort of tell half of our sin or part of our sin. But Jesus says, no, this is all of it. And so this is why she says, she goes back into town and she says, come tell this man, come meet this man who told me everything. Come meet the man who searched my soul. Now here's what's significant to me. So the woman left her water jar and went away into town and said to the people, come meet this man. She didn't have a plastic water bottle. She didn't have an aluminum coffee container. She didn't have what we have today. Two options. Something made out of clay, which would have been really heavy. 
a clay pot, a clay vessel, something like this that carries a substantial amount of water. That was typical in that culture. Okay, not easy to make, not easy to perfect, but that's what she would have had. If she didn't have that, she would have had the intestine of an animal that was typically filled with wine, referred to as a wineskin, and then tied off at both ends and you carried it like a canteen. You typically didn't put water in that. Why am I telling you this? Because it's a big deal that she left it. And I think she left her water container because she encountered the living God and her soul had been quenched with living water and she ran into town. Amazing. And here's what I want to say to you this morning, church, that it is only Jesus that can quench our soul's thirst. Now, church, I want to ask you, church, I'm talking those of you who have tasted living water, who have God's Spirit living in you. Are you running into town? Are you saying, come and meet the man who quenched my soul's thirst? One of our goals for 2013 is that we would evangelize, that we would focus on missions. You see, Jesus said, I've come to seek and save the lost. And Jesus, before he sends into heaven, says, uh, in the great... um, Commission, he says, make disciples of all nations, baptizing in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Do we, like this woman, do we drop our buckets and run? Are we talking to our coworkers? Are we talking to our family? Are we telling them about the God that can quench their soul's thirst with living water? I pray that you'd do that. That'd be my prayer for you today. It's that you'd ask God to encourage you to restore the joy of your salvation that you might, by God's grace, go and share the gospel in both word and deed. Share the gospel with people. And I want to tell you that I know that there are some here today whose souls still thirst for living water. I want to ask you, are you done putting your bucket down the well of death? Are you done trying to shove death down your throat? Your soul will never be satisfied. Your thirst will never be quenched. It doesn't matter what you give yourself to, what you worship. The the Samaritan uh, woman's issue is that she worships something. She worshiped men. This is why Jesus goes into what true worship is. We worship in spirit and truth. If you're worshiping something other than Jesus, your soul hasn't been satisfied. Did you know there are two times that John talks about Jesus being thirsty? Here, in chapter 4, but also in chapter 19. Turn with me, please. It's not that far. We can do it. We can make it. We're going from chapter 4 to chapter 19. Same gospel, gospel of John, verse 28. John 19, verse 28. Jesus thirsts in chapter 4, and here we're going to hear what Jesus thirsts again. Read with me, chapter 19, verse 28. After this, Jesus knowing that, that all was now finished, he's on the cross said, to fulfill Scripture, I thirst. A jar full of sour wine stood there. So they put a sponge full of the sour wine on a hyssop branch and held it to his mouth. When Jesus had received the sour wine, he said, it is finished. He bowed his head and gave up his spirit. The Son of God, Jesus Christ himself, hung on a Roman cross and thirst so that our souls might be satisfied, might be quenched with living water. 
And not only did Jesus thirst on that cup, but Jesus also drank the Father's cup. Wait a minute, he thirsts. Now you're saying he drank. Here's what we read in Mark chapter 14, verses 34 through 36. This is Jesus in the Garden of Gethsemane praying. Before he's arrested by a mob of thugs, drugged back in the town, and then eventually hung on a Roman cross. He said to them, referring to his disciples, My soul is very sorrowful, even to death. Remain here and watch. And going a little further, he fell on the ground. He fell on the ground and prayed that if it were possible, if it were possible, the hour might pass from him. And he said, Abba, Father, all things are possible for you. Remove this cup from me, yet not what I will, but what you will. You see, the cup he's referring to is the cup of wrath in the Old Testament. The cup of God's wrath. The idea of fullness, of completeness. A full cup, and it was poured out upon Jesus. The wrath that you and I deserve. Scripture tells us that we're enemies of God and that we're deserving of God's wrath. So not only did Christ thirst on the cross so that you might be satisfied that your soul might know living water, but he consumed God's wrath, the cup of the Father's wrath. Jesus poured God's wrath. Friends, Scripture says that if, in Romans 10.9 that if you confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord, if you confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord, and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you will be saved if you don't know Christ, if your soul has not been satisfied, there is nothing down any other well that will satisfy you. Only living water, only a gift from God given to us by Jesus will satisfy you. You will never thirst again.